0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Welcome, everybody, to Journey of Unity number 11. So, you know, I always say, like, before I start preparing this year, I don't necessarily know exactly where it's going to end up. A lot of it has to do with the idea that some of these concepts, first of all, the psukim are new. Many times, like, it's the first time that I'm actually, like, learning through the psukim. But also, I find that like as I allow an idea to percolate in my mind, it just sort of goes down different routes. So tonight, I want to sort of build to an, an idea that I think that if a person is able to master this, they have a very good chance of really changing the whole course of their marriage. So let's go slow, and let's build in almost like in three stages here. So the first idea is based on the pasuk. So what is the pasuk? We're up to the pasuk. It says Kappa parsel la'ani which basically means that her hand is spread out to the Ani, poor person, and her hand is also spread out to the, is sent out to the avyan, to the needy person. What does that mean? So the first 10 psukim of Eshaz Chayel, without saying it, really highlight the idea that chesed starts at home you go through all the pasuk, and it focuses a lot on marriage, right? It's... It all has to do really with the house, the help that she has in the house, the emotions that she has in the house. And that's really been most of the focus. Comes along this pasuk, <laughs> excuse me, and the pasuk says, now that she's mastered the home, she's now going to expand out to other areas. So kappa parseliani, her hand is spread out to the poor person obviously not referring to her, her, her own family, and her hands are now going to be extending to the, to the Evian, to the needy person. So we're now talking about outside of the house, a new concept. You, you, were, you did a great job at home. You've mastered your house. Chesed always starts at home. And now you're going to the next level. Now, the Medrash says, who is this person? So let's go to the end. Usually we talk about the Medrash at the end, like who's this woman? So the Medrash says, who is this person? So the Madras says, this is referring to a very special woman. I don't know if we know her name, but she has a reference in Navi. And the reference is based on a story. So I'm going to tell you the story in short. I don't want to dwell on this too much. I want to spend more time at the end. But the basic story is that Eliyoh and Navi was obviously, he was in Navi. And there was a wicked king, Achav. And Alio and Achav had a meeting where the two of them were not really on good terms. But they had a meeting in a Shiva house. Whose shiva house was this? So if you're familiar with your Navi, there was a man who had gone ahead and he rebuilt the city of Yerichai. And we all know that Yeshua said, anybody who builds the city of Yerichai, with the final stone, he's going to bury his final child. And this man didn't heed that warning. He kept building and building and building. And he had 10 sons and all of his sons died until the last one. He said, I'm going to see this through to the end. And that's exactly what happened. He rebuilt the city of Yerichai. And with the, the last stone that he put in, his last son died. At the Shiva house, on the last day of Shiva, is sitting there two very prestigious guests. One of them is Eliyoh Nabi, and the other one is the king, King Ahab. And they come to be Menachem, this man, who did not heed the word of Yeshua. And they were sitting there. Nabuch, this guy, didn't listen. He got punished. And at the end of their Hamaki Menachem Eschem, it was very nice sitting here. Hashem should console you. The king... Ahav turns to Elioah Navi and he mocks him and he gives him he says you know yeah look Yeshua was such a great Navi that when he said that whoever rebuilds the city of Yerichai they're going to bury their sons fine that happened I could acknowledge that but what about me I'm like the worst king in history and if you look at all the bad things that I brought into Israel nothing really happened so bad like it seems that Hashem says, All the psukim and the taichacha. Nothing really happened so bad. But the amount of like, the Zara and stuff that I brought into Israel was terrible. So where's, where's the punishment for what I did? So Eliyoh and Avi said, Okay, it's a, good, it's a good point. You want to test Hashem? No problem. He said, so from here on in, you're not going to be seeing any rain. And Ahav got upset at him. Because the clouds just went away. All of a sudden, it's not raining. And Ahav basically had a bounty out on Elio Anavi's head. Elio Anavi ran away, stayed in a cave. And famously, ravens came and they brought Elio Anavi food to eat. And it was a brook that gave him something to drink. And Elio was there for a while until the famine became so great and the drought became so great that Elio himself had to leave. And he came to the city of Tsarfas. And in the city, he met this woman by the gates. He was very hungry. And he said to this woman, could you please do me a favor and give me something to eat and something to drink? So she said, if you want something to drink, I could give you something to drink. But something to eat, tell you the truth, I'm down to my last meal. Just so have a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, and that's all I have. And it's me and my son, and I'm an almana. And she basically said, I don't know if I'm able to spare anything for you. I'm really sorry. And Elio Navi told her, I promise you, if you give it to me, you won't lose out. All right? Very famous story in Navi. So what did the woman do? She said, of course, I'll take you into my house. She made a meal. And for the rest of her life, she never was lacking food in her house because everything just kept multiplying. And you find a very similar story with Elisha, who became, right, uh, Um, Eliyana, Talmud, he had a very similar story with the, with that woman. Okay, right. so that's the story, right? This woman's son died. Elio brought him back, to de- back from the dead. So Elio Navi comes along into this woman's life. She's faced with a dilemma. The dilemma is, I don't really have any food to spare. I'm really sorry. I can't help you. And Eliyahu, Eliyahu and are very interesting. If you bring me into your family, if you treat an outsider like family, you will not lose out. It's almost like the concept of Eilem Chesed Yibana, that the world is created with Chesed. It's not just that the world is created with Chesed, it's that Chesed is built into the fiber of the world. And by doing Chesed, you should just know like you'll never, ever, ever lose out. And therefore, the Medra says that this woman who is Kappa Parselioni, who is she? She is a person, a mother, a father, a husband, a wife living in 2023, who recognizes that if you're just living for yourself, you're not truly living. In order to like truly live a life where you're, where you're living your life to the, to the maximum, here, in order to live your life to the maximum, you have to live for other people. Okay? That's the idea behind this. In order to live your life to the maximum, you have to live your life for other people. And the promise is that you will never lose out. That's the basic idea. created world of And if you are just living in your own world, in your own bubble, but you're not living for other people, if that's not in who you are as a family, if you have not yet brought that mida into your family, then your family is not living their life to the max. Now, this idea sort of has the good side and the not so good side. So there's a story, which I, I found very, there's two stories which I found very fascinating. First story is the story of the Rav in Ezra's Torah. His name is... Um, Michel Stern. Um, the story goes that Le-Le-Nu, he got sick he had stomach cancer and the doctors told him that he needs to go for a procedure where he was going to have basically half of his stomach cut out and he was very nervous about the outcome of this procedure, it was very painful and he also just didn't know how his whole digestive system was going to feel after he came through the surgery and leading up to the surgery he was very 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 nervous one day he came to the shul and he basically told the people in the shul, he says, you know, I'm going for the surgery soon. I have to share with you guys a story that just happened with me. He said, last night, you know, my surgery is in a couple of days. He said, last night I went to sleep and I had a dream. And in the dream, I saw somebody that I didn't see in 42 years. Who is this man? So he said, 42 years ago, he was close with Rav Ari Levine, who was known as the Tzadik of Yerushalayim. And Ravi Levine used to go around visiting people who were in prisons and hospitals and nursing homes. And he went with Ravi Levine to a nursing home. And in the nursing home, there was a man who was sitting off on the side. And this man seemed to be extremely distraught and extremely in pain. And this man, this Rabbi Stern, Rabbi Chilmechel Stern, he went over to this man and he started talking to him. And this guy was just totally doubled over in pain. He could barely talk. So he started asking what's wrong. This guy was just holding his stomach. He really just couldn't articulate what was going on. So he went over to one of the attendees, attendants over there, and he said to them, tell me what's going on with this guy. So they said, oh, he's one of our patients. He has a major stomach obstruction. He needs a procedure done, but nobody here is willing to pay for it because it, we're just the facility that, you know, they, we watch the patients, but we don't actually do the procedures here. He needs to go to the hospital and in the hospital, they'll take care of him he said let me let me call the family he gets one of the sons on the phone he says you know your father's sitting here in the in the nursing home doubled over in pain nobody's here dealing with him this guy said listen we gave him to the care of the nursing home he's not our problem anymore they have to deal with him i don't know why you're calling me please don't call me again so he went back to the nursing desk. And they said, listen, we don't know what to tell you. It's not what we do here. We watch people. They stay here, but all their medical treatments have to be taken care of by the family. We don't pay for, for we don't pay for care. So he realized like this guy's sitting here suffering and there's a tug war going on between the family and the nursing facility. So he said, listen, this guy is in pain. Let's just order an ambulance. Let's get an ambulance. Let's get a hospital. Let's get a doctor. They took this guy, they did a procedure. And a couple of days later, he gets a bill. And the bill, I don't know what this means in American dollars, but the bill was for 300 lira. Okay, lira was a currency back in your slime, back in those days. The bill was for 300 lira. He said that he made, he earned 500 lira a month, just to give you a concept. So basically like 60% of his salary for the month. So he looked at these bills and it had his name on it because he's the one who called the ambulance. He's the one who brought everything in. And he looked at it and he said, okay, let me at least now call the family. He called the family and he says to them, listen, your father had this procedure done. The guy's like, what do you want from me? Like, if you guys take care of him, take care of him. He's not our problem. And they hung up the phone. And he's like, okay, this is a problem. So he went ahead and he spent 300 lira, his money, 60% of his income. He saved it. He saved it, he spent it. And he paid up this guy's hospital bill. A couple of days later, he's making his rounds and he comes back to the same nursing home. And he sees the same man sitting on the side and doubled over in pain. And he says to the nurse, what happened? They said, I don't know. They did some sort of procedure. They brought him back here. But now he's on the side. And it's just, it's just, you know, I don't know. He needs a doctor. So he called the son. The son slammed the phone down on him. The nursing desk was not interested in dealing with them. So he called the, he called 911 again, whatever the number is in Israel. He called them again. They came with. An ambulance, they pick up this man, they bring him to the, to the hospital, they do the procedure again. They send him a bill for another 300 lira. A couple days later, he's back in the same nursing home. He sees this man again sitting in the corner. He said six different times within a span of just a few weeks, he was in this ha- same facility, same story, called the same family, six different times. They had to take this man until finally everything fixed itself up. And that was the story. They moved on with his life. He spent, I don't know how much money that is, right? If you want to try to calculate in your brain, let's assume it's $5,000 each procedure, right? So he spent a total of $30,000 on a total stranger that he had no idea who he was, okay? Now, he is a few days away from his own surgery, his own stomach cancer surgery, where they're about to cut out half of his stomach and he's petrified. And he said, last night I had a dream and in the dream, I met this man. And he came to tell me, that he, he heard that I'm having this surgery going on. And he went to the in shamala and he told them over this story. And he said, I, I promise you, you're going to come out of this. You're going to feel totally fine. You're going to have to go through this procedure, but you're going to come out. You're going to have no complications. Everything's going to be smooth and everything's going to be fine. And that's exactly what happened. As man said, it's unbelievable how 42 years before he got involved in somebody who had something wrong with his digestive system. He did something which he extended himself and 42 years later, his entire, he was like, pachad, like what's going to be for the rest of my life? The rest of your life is smooth sailing. Because you put good into the world, good comes back to you. The Gemara says, which means you you plant good, good comes back. You plant evil, evil comes back. This man planted good and good came back to him. On the flip side, I was reading this story, and at the end, I'd had such a sh- like such a shudder. The story just really hit home. The story goes was that there was a Talmud of the Chassam Seifer. He got a job in a town in Poland. I just saw this book from Yechiel It Just really blew my mind. He got a job as a rav in a town in Poland. Okay, his name is Reb Mintz, and he got this the stellar this job as a rub in the town, this man was a genius, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And he spoke multiple languages. He was very articulate. He knew a lot of things about a lot of things. He used to deal with the government and issues and committees and things and everything. There was a group in the town that decided that how is somebody so smart? It's not possible somebody could be so smart just from sitting and learning. So they spread a rumor that the only way that this man, this rub, the rub of their town was so smart was because he was reading books written by secular authors, which is like the worst thing in the world. And that's the only way that this man couldn't possibly have so much knowledge. So this rumor caught fire, and many people in the town started distancing themselves from the Rav. They started asking other people, Shilas, they started going to other people, and the Rav was able to sit and learn, but he was very isolated within his own community. One day, there was an outbreak of some sort of pandemic a local pandemic something that was going around and the government said that there can't be any mass gatherings because it could spread right we've heard a thing or two of that right so the government said nobody can gather this is the chok ahmedina this is the letter this is the rule of law nobody's allowed to gather the rav was approached but there was a local wedding that was taking place and they asked him like, what should we do so the the Rav, he stood up and he said, you know, I've evaluated this whole thing. It's a legitimate threat and we have to be very cautious. It's sakanas Nefashis. Nobody's allowed to go to this wedding. So a few people heard this and they said, eh, like this modern Rav, the he's a modern Rav. He's not, we don't have to listen to him. So they decided that they're going to move the wedding into the cemetery. And there, it's like sort of off grounds and maybe we could get away with it. He heard about it and he said, B'shem nobody's allowed to go to this wedding. Anybody who does, we're going to have to take very severe action. This is really Pikokh nefesh. You cannot go to this wedding. The wedding eventually took place, but nobody went because they were very scared of, you know, being arrested. And But the wedding took place. But there were many people in the town that were very jaded by this. They were like, this Rav, this modern guy comes in. And he's telling us what to do based on science. Eh, this is not for us. It came time for Rosh Hashanah. And Blaybishman, the Rav, his job was that he was the one who calls out. He's the Makri. He calls out the Kiyos on Rosh Hashanah. He stands up in Shul, it's in the middle of Rosh Hashanah. He goes up to the Bima and he's about to start. And a different guy comes running up and he says, excuse me, excuse me. You could go sit down. We don't need you here right now. Thank you very much. I'll be the mockery this year. We don't need a modern rub calling out. You want to call somebody, you could call the police, some people who are gathering for weddings. We don't need you here calling out to Kias to Hashem. Leave that to us religious people. You go sit down on on the side and thank you, we don't need you. And the rub said, like, what are you talking about? I'm the rub. Excuse me, please go sit down. And a fight broke out. And this guy slapped the rub in the face. The whole town was in shock. The police came. They had to break up this fight. And shortly after Rosh Hashanah, Rabbi Bishmans was escorted in shame from this town. That was the story. Now, what was the name of this town? So the Polish name of this town is spelled O-S-W-I-E-C-M. Auschwitz. But the way we pronounce it is Auschwitz. That was literally the center for everything. And there's this like, I read this, I was like, I had chills. When you plant good, good grows. When you plant things that are not good, not such good thing grows. That's the way of the world. That's the way that Hashem created the world. In the fabric of existence, is either good, chesed, and you plant it, you give it out, it's there. If you don't, then it's not. And the first part of this pasuk, of this eshes chayel, of this man or woman who wants to live their life to the fullest is that you turn to your family and you say to them very simply, let's plant good. Let's be good. Let's extend ourselves past ourselves. Let's open our house. Let's have guests. Let's have a ha- ha- archem. Let's visit people. Let's call people. You live your life beyond your own self. And if a family does that, You're now expanding, not just like, okay, I'm a nice person, not just I'm expanding out. You're actually starting to teach your family. And that's what brings me to number two, is that whenever I talk about dating, I always tell people that I think that one of the most missed, I'll say missed opportunities. It's like while a person's dating, you have an opportunity to ask questions. And if you ask questions that are just, Random questions, fine. You know, you see, have a good time with the person, fine. But I think anybody who's married for more than a minute will agree that the reality is that when you're living your life with your partner, with your husband, your wife, you realize that most of your interactions is an emotional connection to the person or an emotional relationship with the person. But when you're dating, many people don't pick the time to actually date emotionally. And people say, "Well, what does that mean?" Very simple, you. You determine if the person that you're going out with is congruent with your emotional state. Are you able to have a good, heavy conversation with them? Do you like the way that they perceive the world? Do they deal with challenges the same way you would, or in a way that maybe you don't? But you look up to them. You're able to like share their passion for something. Everyone is filled with emotions, but if you just date and you go to Dave and Buster's and you go for walks on the boardwalk and you talk about like people always say like we talk tachas. What did you talk about? Uh, we talked, you know, hashkaffa, like, I think this and they think it's fine. Yeah, it's important. I'm not making light of it. Like, yeah, it's an important thing. You have to make sure you're going in the same direction in life. But 99% of the time that can be determined within before you even go out with the person. You make some phone calls, you know, a general sense, like you're headed north, they're headed north, maybe more or less, right? You go on one or two dates, you could figure out like if you're, you know, what highway you're on. When it comes to emotions, emotions is a relationship. You're getting into a relationship. How do you not date emotionally to see like if this person is even congruent with your with your emotion? And what struck me was, here you have a, a woman, the Esh Azrael, a man, right? He's leading his family. And he turns to his wife and he says to her, okay, honey, we, I want to have guests in the basement this Shabbos. Okay, how many? I want to have 10 people. Not for myself, not for my COVID, not for anything. There's a family. They're making a simcha. I'd like to open our home a little bit. I, I want to help, you know, the neighbor across the street with whatever it is, I'll be gone for an hour. Whatever the case may be, if if the couple is not on the same page with the way that they perceive the world, with the emotional connection that they have with others, you can have massive fights. Like, what do you mean you're opening our house to other people? What do you mean you're going to be gone for an hour? What does that mean? A, a big part of the idea of living life together is not just your hashkafic goals, but I would say that it's your emotional comp- compatibility, the way you face the world, hopefully together as a unit. There's a story I just read that I think it brings out so many elements over here. But there's there's two specific parts of the story that really blew my mind. The story that happened very recently, a couple years ago, with a family. This guy was a Gabay in the shul in Eretz Israel. He had a small apartment, and his job every Shabbos he was the Gabay in the shul. He would greet people. They would come into the shul and he would say, Shalom Aleichem, how are you? You sit here, you sit here, you sit here, you sit here. One Shabbos, it's, let's say, Thursday or Wednesday. His neighbor meets him in the hallway and turns to him and says, Ah, Shalom Aleichem, I'm so glad I met you. I have a very, very uncomfortable question to ask you. But if you need to say no, say no. But I'm really hoping you could say yes. What's the question? He says, we're making a Shabbos Sheva Brachas this Shabbos. And we'll make And my parents, we thought we had an apartment for them. We don't. They only could come if they have a ground floor, floor apartment. You happen to have a ground floor apartment. I don't know how to ask you, but I'm hoping that you're, you'll say, okay, like, would you be asking to go and go away for a Shabbos? Like, give us your apartment, right? And our straw, obviously, it's much smaller than what we have here. So he said, like, would you be asking to like, go away for a Shabbos? I'll even, I'll find somewhere for you to go. That'll be nice for your family. But like, I really need your apartment for my parents to come for Shabbos. So the guy's like, okay, let me think about it. Discuss it with my family and I'll come back. Which first of all, I just have to say, it's always a good eight to say. Let me discuss it with my spouse, okay? Okay, if you didn't learn anything else other than that, that's a very that's a very smart thing to say. So he comes into his house and he turns to his wife and he says, do you know, the neighbor just asked us if we'd be maskim." To giving out our apartment for shabbos so the wife is starts talking to him and all the children are sitting around and they all came gravitating in Now, why because that shabbos was his own daughter's shabbos kala so the next week he was making a simcha he was making a wedding so he has his daughter who's a kala and she comes running into the room and she's like wait wait what happened and he says, yeah, the neighbor asked if they could have our apartment for Shabbos because they're making a Shabbos Shabbos rachas. So the whole family looks at each other and they're like, obviously the answer is no, right? What's the question? Because it it's not even a question. How could we possibly give it out? It just doesn't make any sense. So the father says, I know the answer is no. We're making a Shabbos kala. We need our apartment. We're putting guests up in other apartments near our apartment. Of course, the answer is no. Fine. But what would it take for the answer to be yeah? So everyone's like, haha, it's not, the answer can't be yeah, the answer has to be no. So he's like, I know, I know, but let's just talk it through. What would it take for the answer to be yeah? So the family sits around, no emotion, and they said, okay, the answer is no. We'll tell him no. But, but what, what would it take for the answer to be yeah? So the father said, listen, everybody knows I don't go away because I'm the Gabbai. This Shabbos, maybe, maybe I should get away. Like, it would be cute. I'll get away, right? He's also offering me to to have a house that's like somewhere out. Maybe the house is nice. Maybe it's nicer than our apartment. We'll be in some nice villa. We'll have the whole Shabbos Kala there. And like, why not? Like it, and, and then he said this, family, like, and what if it was us? Like, what if we were making a simcha and they had the only apartment in the building that could host the family? Like, I'm not saying we have to say, yeah. I'm just saying, what if we talk through what it would take to say, yeah. And the family was sitting around and they were schmoozing. And throughout this conversation, everyone was like, you know, it would be a great opportunity. This Shabbos, Tati Tati will be off. He doesn't have to work in the shul. He'll have a nice vacation from his job. We'll go to this villa. It's going to be a party. We're going to invite all these girls, for the, the, the college friends. This is amazing. Okay, we're in. So he calls his friend, his neighbor, and he says, okay, we thought it through. The answer is yes, we'll take you up on your offer. So the whole family's in, they're excited. This neighbor's like, really, you sure? Like, aren't you making something? He's like, don't worry about us, we're fine. He goes ahead, he makes a simcha. He makes the simcha in the house, Shabbos. Shabbos is in this guy's house. This guy comes back from after the weekend and he's tired, the whole story, he's tired, he's exhausted, falls asleep. And that night, like 1.30 in the morning, his phone starts ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. So he gets very nervous and he sees that it's like his Mahatanim are calling and he sees like numbers coming in from the city, like the Iriah is calling him. It's like getting very nervous, like what in the world is going on over here? So he, he starts picking up the phone. He realizes like somebody's trying to get in touch with him and somebody tells him on the phone, he says, you know, we're really sorry to tell you, but there's this new thing called COVID-19 and it just came to your Shkuna, to your area. And we heard that you're making a wedding this week. Really sorry to tell you, but you're not allowed to go. So he calls his mahatanim and everyone's on the phone the middle of the night and everyone's yelling and screaming like, oh my gosh, it's going to be crazy. What's going to be? What's going to be? And his son-in-law throughout this whole thing said, listen, if it was in your neighborhood and you're not able to come, we'll push off the wedding. It's okay. Whatever's good for you, tati, mommy. Like the son-in-law was being really, really nice to him. And as they're talking and he's paging in this person and that person, the person said to him, Yet there's no way you can make a wedding this week since you guys were home for Shabbos and you were in this and this shul. So he's like, wait a minute. I I am the godly of that shul, but it happens to be for the only time in my entire life I was not home for Shabbos. So the guy's like, oh, you weren't home for Shabbos? Oh, so then you didn't come in contact with this and this guy who's in the shul? So he said, no. He said, oh, then forget it. I'm really sorry. Your wedding could go on. It's not a problem. You can go just stay away from other people for the next couple of days and you guys could have a regular normal wedding. So he went ahead And they had a regular normal wedding. And he said, after the story, and this is, I think, the Nakuda. He said, after the story, he said, I was so excited that we had this conflict before the wedding because I was able to see that my son-in-law treated me as a father and I was going to treat him as a son. When people have conflict, that's where emotions come out. That's where emotions come out. Most people date and they date and it's nice. It's this, it's nice. And then all of a sudden, it's after the fact, you realize like, oh my gosh, what happens when things are not good? What happens when there's a conflict? What happens when, when we have two people who have three different opinions? What do we do then? And then all of a sudden, that's when the fireworks start. This guy was able to see, first of all, you don't lose from chassad. You don't lose from chassad. You never lose from Hased. And the second thing was he was able to see somebody in his family who was challenged by an Asayin. And the way that they dealt with that in Isayin, that was something that he was able to look at his son-in-law and say, I hold you to the highest esteem for the rest of your life because you were challenged and you rose to the challenge. You could have said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm getting married. It's my wedding. I don't care if my father-in-law is there. You can't make it. You'll stay in some glass bubble and it's your problem. He didn't do that. He was like, "Kati, whatever's good for you, whenever it's good for you, that's when we're going to make the chasana. The main thing is that you're vir and you're gazant and you're healthy. He dealt with it like a champ. His emotions were so in line that the father-in-law was like, wow. I'm so happy we had this Nesayin because I was able to see who we actually were dealing with. Which brings me to the third thing. And this is what struck me. I hope I don't get too much backlash on this, but I'll say it anyways. The Mepharshim say that the last two Psukim that we just dealt with, really, if you focus, the, the wording is very similar. Let's go back one step to last time we gave this class. Pasuk Yod is Yodeha Sholcha Bakishar Vechapeha Tamku Pale right? Yodaha and kapeha. And then over here, this pasuk is kapa parseliani, viyodaha shokalevan. We had yud, where we're talking about palms and hands. And then we have this pasuk, which talks about palms and hands. And many of them, of just group this together, that where she's dealing with her family, the way she's dealing with her family is yodaha, yodaha, yodaha kapeha, like it's her hands. And then now she's dealing with outsiders and it's yadeha kapeha, her, her hands and her palms again. And there's reasons why it's yadaha, but wouldn't, let's not get into that now. What are they saying, these mafarshim? They're saying that the same emotion that you, that you invested in your family, we just spoke about this, you now invest in other people. So the same way your neighbor needs, an, the same way you would give up your apartment for your child or for your parents, you would do it for your neighbor as well, right? You expand your emotion for your family into the rest of the world, right? Beautiful. But here's what I was thinking. I deal with so many couples. And as they're talking through an issue, a lot of times I say to them, so how did you guys talk this through? Tell me how your conversation went. And they go like, no, it didn't go anywhere. Or they'll say, okay, let's try it now. And the wife will say, you know, you never come home on time. And I feel very whatever. And the husband's like, yeah? And they start screaming and yelling. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa." (laughs) like you guys, you guys, are all saying right things. Like the things you're saying are correct, but the way you're going about it is totally wrong. Your voice has to change. Your emotions have to change. And what struck me as I was reading this was maybe it would be better for some people to treat their family the way they would treat their neighbor. It's, it's good. You have to treat your neighbor like your family, but sometimes it's good to treat your family like you're, like a stranger. Because I guarantee you, if you just mop the floor and your husband walked through what you just mopped, and if you just mop the floor and your neighbor walked through, I guarantee you your reaction would be different. I guarantee you. We're so comfortable, which is good, obviously, with our family that to a degree, a lot of what we, what we built up gets so lost. You know, when, when I, I said this a couple years ago on Tisha it struck me because after we had our twins, you know, which was right before the summer, I noticed that, and Baruch Hashem, my house is very calm always, but I just noticed that by bringing a nurse into the house, everyone was so aware that there was somebody else in the house. It was like, can you please pass that from the edge of the table there today, because you know, it, it was, it was just such a, such an awareness of like, there's a stranger in the house. So you just you just talk differently. You're much more conscious. You're much more aware. You're not yelling. You're not screaming. You're not belittling. You're not accusing. Because you're just aware that there's somebody around. And, you know, it's such a basic, but we always forget it. But the idea of like, Shivisi Hashan L'Negdi Samid, the idea on that like a person should get up in the morning, but Al and don't say, I'm in my own house. Nobody sees me. That's not a way to live your life. You live your life that, Kaviachal Hashem is in your house. And what struck me was, maybe to a degree, what these Pesukim are really saying is that if a person would be conscious to speak to their family like they would speak to a stranger, then the way that they go about this would be so much better and so much different. And I can't tell you how many couples I've sat with where I say, everything you say is true, but the way you're saying it is, is, is wrong. Everything you say is right, but the way that you're going about it is 100% wrong. Your words are wrong but your emotion is right. And and what struck me, I wanted to say a few things, which I think are just very important. Number one is that the ability to have a conversation, which I hear from many people, is that we can't have a conversation or I can't bring that up. I think that that is probably the biggest chesed you could do for your family is to be able to have an open conversation really about anything, but in a way that's calm, that's respectful, that's not accusatory, that's not belittling, that's not attacking where you're really able to have a nice conversation with somebody about something. Because ultimately, if you think about it, criticism is really a form of chesed, right? Think about it. Nobody nobody likes to think we think criticism is a bad thing. Criticism is like the biggest chesed you can, you can give somebody. Like a basketball coach criticizes his players all the time. Doesn't say you're stupid. Doesn't put them down. He doesn't say you're a failure. He turns to them and he says, do this a little bit. Do that a little bit. It's what I would call corrective action. He helps them do things a little bit different. And really within our relationships, that's what we're doing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be helping each other go navigate through life. But how do you do it? A basketball coach who turns to to the player and he says, you're a failure. You're a loser. You're never going to amount to anything. That's not a coach. You're just a psychotic person. If you turn to the person who you're married to and you say, I want to be able to have a conversation with you. But the conversation has to be calm. The conversation has to be open. And I like to think is that if I would say to you, what are your spouse's emotional needs? Most people would say, I don't know, they, they want to feel loved and they want to feel secure. And those things are all true. I think that what people really, really crave in a relationship besides for that is the ability to feel understood. Understood. How often does that happen that you're having a conversation? And you just go, oh, you just don't get it. You just don't feel understood. Feeling understood in a relationship Takes two people whose whose emotions, if I would call like the 50 yard line, like the 50% mark to be like healthy, like that's your healthy line. And a hundred is like way out of control. And zero is very stoic that they're going from like 40 to 60. It's like a heartbeat, like a healthy heartbeat. That's where our emotions should be. It should be like in that range. If you don't have that, then there's no conversation that's going to take place. No conversation that's going to take place. But somehow when we're talking to the neighbor about something, we're able to do that, right? If your neighbor's kid keeps hitting a ball over the fence and keeps hitting your car and keeps hitting, you would take the ball and you go over, you say, hi, how are you? yeah, Shlamey's having such a good time in the backyard, but he's just having too much of a good time. And he's such a good ball player that he keeps hitting it and he keeps hitting my car. Could you please speak to Shlamey? Thank you so much. And here's some cookies, right? And when it's your own kid, you're like, if I see that ball flying in this house ever again, right? Something else is going to fly out of this house. Like what happened, right? When it's your neighbor's kid, you're the nicest lady on the block. When it comes to our own kid, all of a sudden it's like, where where did these emotions go? And what struck me recently, I'll end with this, is that- when it comes to certain, certain gravitational pull of various bodies of mass, you think about the sun, you think about the earth, you think about the moon, you think about an asteroid. When you have something that has a very strong center of mass, that creates a gravitational pull. So you think about the sun and you have the earth, for example, flying around the sun, it's rotating around the sun. But then you have the moon, which is smaller than the earth and it's rotating around the earth. And if you would have an asteroid that would fly by the moon, it would be pulled into the gravitational force of the moon. Am I making sense? The bigger, the stronger the mass, the more the gravitational pull. And I would argue that in many relationships, if a person sees that, that the relationship is getting off, they see that the conversations are getting off, make yourself the strongest center of mass with the most equilibrium in terms of your emotions. And I guarantee you, your family will start to gravitate towards you. If you find that your kids are always jumping and yelling and screaming, and it's like such a balagan in the house, be very, very strong with yourself, not with them, with yourself, to make sure that your emotions stay in a healthy range. And if you do this for a number of days or a number of weeks, I guarantee you, the overall octave in your house will lower. I guarantee you, if the next time you're having a conversation with your spouse, they're yelling they're screaming they're they're nervous they're accusatory whatever the case may be if you're just sitting there and you go wow i really hear you go on tell me you seem really hurt let's let's write this down let's let's talk this through like this father who sat down with his family i know the answer is no but now let's talk through how it might be yes very calm we're not yelling we're not screaming it's not like a fight it's let's just talk about it let's put this on paper oh, i hear you what can we do about this we're on the same team we're here for each other. If you have a conversation like that, I guarantee you, if you're stronger than your spouse in this specific aspect, your conversations will be elevated. They will be elevated. You're going to find the person's not going to be yelling and screaming. There's nobody to scream at. There's nobody to scream to. After a while, you're going to see they're going to say to you, okay, so what about this? What about that? You're like, oh, you're, you're, you're here. I have home court advantage because I was stronger than you. Not stronger that I yelled at you, but stronger that I yelled at myself, I calmed myself down. I retained my own center of, of, of gravity. I was able to keep myself balanced. You will gravitate towards me. It, it, it's such a tool that is—it's not utilized enough. And I, a lot of times I'm sitting with couples, and I'm like trying to put my head around, I'm like, what what's going what's going wrong over here? And the answer is they they can't even have a basic conversation about basic things. So I I'm sitting there translating what the husband is saying and then what the wife is saying. And I'm like, one second, if you guys just mastered this, if you just learn to talk to each other by by understanding what you're doing, I don't want to call it wrong, but what you can do a little bit different, then I guarantee you that the entire level of your conversation will be elevated. So that's it. Let's just sum this up. Chesed starts at home. Chesed then expands out to other people and you treat other people like you treat your family. And that's a basic. If you live your life for others, you never go wrong. And that should be part of the way that you educate your family, that you bring up your family. And then your family learns from you. They learn their emotions from you. And you're able to see that you're able to have an emotional connection to other people. And just like when you're dating, you should date emotionally. When you're married, you have to make sure that your emotions are on the same plate, on the same team. You schmooze things through, even if it's an emotional. I was thinking, imagine if a husband came home and he said to his wife, the neighbor just asked for our apartment for this Shabbos and you're making a simcha. Just think about it in your own head. Play it out in your own house what would that look like? It'd be like, no, 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 no. Well, you get, I get emotional just thinking of the neighbor asking the guy, you know, like he's panicking. How do I even present this to my family? Right. And th- this man I think is like a guggle. He's so smart how he came in and he said, yeah, they presented the answer is no. So everyone's calm. He's like, now can we just schmooze through what it would take to be yes? I thought that was such a genius man. This man must be so, so centered, so balanced. Like, to have that that foresight to do that, as opposed to coming in and be like, you don't know what happened. The neighbor's asking for our apartment. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. How are we going to deal with this? What are we going to say to them? That's how I think most families would would deal with it. It's like an emotional curveball, but he didn't. I just thought it was such a beautiful story, okay? And then the last thing, which is, yeah, you should treat your stra- you, should, you should treat strangers like you treat your family, but maybe you should also treat your family like you treat strangers. Don't be so comfortable with your family to the point where you're belittling and you're putting them down. I just remember when I spoke on my Shabbat Shabbat Brachas, um, I don't want to tell you the whole speech, but just one point that I said at that speech, I remember, I just remembered it now. I said, my Bracha to everybody who was like mishtatif in the whole thing is that you should treat your spouses the way I'm treating my spouse today. Right? <laughs> Here at Shabbat Brachas, like, you know, you just... You're so lucky you're married. You're so happy you're married. just think the world of the person. But then as life goes on, all of a sudden it's easy to lose sight of that. And that's it. That that skill, I think, alone is something which really could transform a relationship. All right. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.